Good to, we're missing a few folks. Uh, I guess the ice and the snow, or I don't, I don't know. But we're glad you're here. It's a great day. Let's turn to John chapter 3. We're making our way through the Gospel of John. We've come to verse 22. I'd like to read through verse 36. That'll be our text for today and for next week. John 3, verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Enon near Salim because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for this Lord's Day and for the opportunity to come and to worship together As your church, we pray that you would receive honor and glory from what has already taken place this morning, and we pray, Lord, that you would just bless bless this time of ministry from your word. We pray that you would receive glory from that as well. This we pray in Christ's name, amen. Unfortunately, when, more, when two or more people are endeavoring in the same pursuit, there can be a sense of competition. And competition is not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, it's not a bad thing in business, in a capitalistic society. Uh, 
But the competition that we're looking at in this passage is this is not a this is not a place for that kind of competition. This kind of competition often leads to one or the other displaying feelings of strife or conflict or even animosity. At such times of dissension, pride arises uh, to the surface and seeks to assert itself and take the winnings. Such is not the case in verses 22 through 36. For we see here John the Baptist and Christ in the same vicinity, in the same region, doing the same thing. And yet, between the two leaders of these groups, there is no competition. What we see in these verses is the utmost of humility and genuine desire to carry out the will of God and see His name glorified. We all recognize the virtue of humility as an important, very important thing. However, it is, it, it is one of the greatest Christian virtues. Stated more than once in Scripture but usually from a negative standpoint. Listen to Galatians 6, verse 3. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Now that in reverse is speaking about humility. Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has given or assigned. So we're given these negative statements that deal with humility. Not thinking highly, too highly of ourselves. Jesus and his disciples, or at least the six disciples mentioned in chapter 1, verses 35 to 51 have now traveled to the Judean countryside. They were in, if you recall, they were in Galilee. They had gone to the wedding. And Nicodemus came to see Jesus by night. That whole conversation takes place in chapter 3, down to verse 21. And now Jesus has left there and he has traveled south into Judea. Would have been been quite a ways, 30, 40 miles uh, on foot with his disciples. They have traveled to the south and west side of the Jordan River near Salim. Now, remember that Jesus began calling his disciples at Bethany near the Jordan River in Judea. So they're back in not exactly the same area, but very close to the same area that he called them originally from. Cana, of course, is in that area, and that's where the wedding was. In chapter 2, we find him in Jerusalem at the Passover, where he cleansed the temple. And then, after that, we see the encounter with Nicodemus. And now he is back in the Judean region where John is baptizing. 
The place where John was baptizing is called Anon. It means abounding in springs. And there was obviously in that place near Salim, this place called Anon, which, which no one really knows exactly where it was. It's not on any of the, any maps now. Just a sort of a general area, but there's lots of water there, and so John was there baptizing. This could be the Old Testament Shechem, where where the event took place there among the children of Israel and the the people at Shechem. Water, of course, would have been required for John to be baptizing. And so now we see Jesus there. And the people are coming out and they're being baptized by John. And they're also being baptized by Jesus. Of course, chapter 4 says that Jesus himself baptized no one. But his disciples were doing the baptizing. And so uh, John is doing the very thing that he's always done from the very beginning. He came preaching uh, repentance and salvation and baptizing people as a result of that. And he's still doing that here. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I baptize with water for repentance, John said. But one is coming after me who is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John is, is still carrying on his work. And his work was to show people the Messiah, which he did. And now he is going to do it again. So all this took place before John was thrown into prison by King Herod. All of the events that we see here taking place happened in in the Gospel of Matthew, happened between Matthew chapter 12 verse 11 and verse 12. What you have is a gap of time in Matthew chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. In between those two verses is a gap of time for about a year. It's called the year of obscurity. John is the only one that mentions anything that took place during that year. The other synoptic writers don't mention it. And so what we have is the wedding at Cana, the cleansing of the temple, the visit by Nicodemus, the, the woman at the well, all of these things happened in that first year of Jesus' public ministry. John being the only one to record them. The crowds had come to where John was, and they were now beginning to lessen somewhat as Jesus also was there. It says, as they were there together in the same place, baptizing, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And so they came to John. Now, this this occasion represents the reason this subject came up. They were at Anon, and John was baptizing, and Jesus' disciples were also baptizing. And as a result of that, a 
discussion came up in verse 25 between John's disciples and it says a Jew. I'm thinking this would have been one of Jesus' disciples. Although it's not named as such. Whoever it was, the discussion ensued about purification. Why purification? Now we talked about purification back uh, in chapter 2 with the wedding at Canaan. You remember the big pots that Jesus had filled with water? Those were pots for purification, washing. But this purification is not that kind. This kind of purification is one that was done by an immersion. The Jews were very familiar with baptism, with baptism as an immersion, which is what the word means. The word discussion is really not an adequate word to describe what took place here. It seems as though the Jews were constantly disputing and discussing matters among themselves, and often it would, it would become quite heated, even contentious at times. And they still are like that. You get a bunch of Jews together, you're going to have discussions that can become quite raucous. This was more like an argument. It was more like a debate, a quarrel, or a controversy than a simple discussion. The Jews were known for this. And this all revolved around purification. They saw baptism as a rite of purification. And so the discussion and the argument began. Purification was accomplished in the Jewish mind by a total immersion in water. The Encyclopedia of Judica writes, quote, The person or article to be purified must undergo total immersion in either a mayim, hayim, which is live water. I'll explain that. That is, a spring, a river, the sea, or a mikvah, which is a body of water at least uh, 120 gallons, 40 siyas, as Jews would call it, brought together by natural means, not drawn. In other words, if you're going to have that body of water to immerse in, it has to come from a natural source. It can't just be bottled in and poured in had to be natural, had to be live water. The person or article must be clean and have nothing adhering to him or it, including clothing. So in your birthday suit, you're immersed in this uh, water. That was the purification rite. You had to be completely immersed in the water. This often happened in the, in the, uh, in weddings. Uh, as a purification symbol. This kind of purification was considered a kind of catharsis, which the Jews saw as a cleansing from the filth, from filth or contamination. Now, it, immersing oneself in water may clean the outside of the body, but it doesn't do anything for the inside. 
This could have been very possibly what one of the disciples, uh, what they were arguing over. One of the disciples of John uh, was jealous of the crowds leaving John and going over to Jesus. And so this whole thing of purification comes, comes to bear. If so, this disciple had not been paying attention to John's calling, nor the outward referral and relinquishing of his own popularity to that of Jesus. Look back at chapter 1 quickly. Look at verse 19. This is the testimony of John. That when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, Well, what then? Are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. They said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing if you're neither Christ or Elijah or the prophet? He answered, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Pretty clear. These disciples of John must not have been listening well, or they had short memory. The dispute between John's disciples and Jesus' disciples, if indeed it was his, had probably been heated for some time. John's disciples came to Jesus seeking, or came to John, excuse me, seeking some answers. And so what they asked him really reveals their heart. They said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness. There's the, there's, they remembered that he had borne witness. What happened to their belief in what John had said? Look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. These are words of bitter complaint. In their estimation, John was the one who was the master baptizer. He should be the one doing the baptizing, not Jesus' disciples. And so the people, in their minds, should be listening to John. Someone has said that this is a course in Jealousy 101. And I think they're right. Their question is, essentially, look, everyone is going over to him, so what are you going to do about it? I remember years ago, when we first came here, within the first two years, we had sort of a, what you'd call a, um, a mini mass exodus of people leaving the church and going to other places, and, and uh, of course... Uh, it was all it was all my fault that they were doing that, and I remember one elder at that particular time saying to me, "What are you going to do about this?" And I said, "What do you mean? What am I going to do about it?" 
There's nothing I can do about it. People either decide this is the church we want, this is what we want, or they find something else. And I think this is what's happening here with John and his disciples. William Hendrickson gives three explanations as to their complaint. Number one, he says, in the spirit of jealousy and anger, they purposely avoid even mentioning the name of Jesus. Why did they not mention Jesus' name? Because Jesus is a polarizing individual. If you don't believe that, just get on a crowded elevator sometime and start talking about Jesus. Just mention Jesus. And see how quiet it gets. The stares that you get. Some people will turn away from you. They're uncomfortable mentioning the name Jesus. They see Jesus and John as rivals or competitors. They did not understand or they had not understood that John had a single purpose. to, And that was to point people to Jesus. Not to build up himself or his following. In John's mind there was no competition. And so their jealousy and anger... Is misplaced. Second, they seem not to have been very pleased with the fact that John bore testimony to Jesus. Their words probably constitute a veiled rebuke with reference to John's testimony from chapter 1, as we just read. They had the attitude that if it didn't come from John, well, it just wasn't, it wasn't any good. There are a lot of people like that today. People follow one individual particularly or a couple of individuals. If it doesn't come from them, then then it's no good. And even though we do not encourage a weak gospel message, we can rejoice if the gospel message is preached. That's what the Apostle Paul did. He knew that there were people in his time that were preaching the gospel for the wrong reasons. But he rejoiced in the fact that the gospel was preached nonetheless. Philippians chapter 1 verse 18. What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. So if Christ is proclaimed, we may not dot our I's and cross our T's like Others do, but if Christ is put front as the foremost, if Christ is in the front, if Christ is being preached, if salvation is in Him alone, we can rejoice in that, even if we disagree on lots of other things. I'm not talking about a false gospel that has other items mixed with it. I'm talking about the true gospel. Number three, they make full use of the figure of of the figure of speech called hyperbole. Notice what they said: all are going to him. We're really good at hyperbole, aren't we? You never, you always say everybody's going to him. Well, is that was that true? No, it wasn't true. Not everybody was going to him, but 
That's what happens when jealousy enters in and people begin to see or think things that aren't exactly right. Then exaggeration becomes easy. To show this this show of jealousy and self-preservation, John answers the disciples with a with a, a statement that is unassuming and very humble. John says, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. That is something we would all be better, better off to remember. Now what was taking place at this particular time, as John was baptizing and Jesus came to the same place baptizing, was exactly what John wanted. This was not going against what John's desire was. This was the very reason he was born. It was to show people the Messiah who could save them from their sins. And so John makes it very clear that to follow him was to follow Christ. And that's, that's exactly the way we ought to be. The Apostle Paul said it. Be imitators of me as I am an imitator of Christ. Follow me so long as I am following Christ. And when, one's, when one wanes or veers from following Christ, then you don't follow them. Christ is the central figure. He's the one that we're to follow. And so it would be a sin... To try and place John above Jesus. And equally a sin for John to lead people away from Jesus. John didn't want that. And no one else wants to follow someone to the exclusion of Jesus that knows Jesus. Because there's no one like Jesus. John knew and understood what so many today are ignorant of. Or refuse to acknowledge. And that is that everything that anyone does. Is comes from the sovereignty of almighty God. And that means everything. Saved and unsaved alike. Nobody has anything. Except that it's given to them from heaven. You, me. Our family, our neighbors. D.A. Carson writes, God's sovereignty stands hidden behind all human claims. For a a human being does not have anything but what he has received. That's true of everything in life. It's true especially of everything that is spiritual. Of every spiritual undertaking. Anything of a God-honoring nature comes from heaven along with everything else. James chapter 1, verse 17. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God had granted John the privilege of being the forerunner of the Messiah. And if that work was coming to an end... Then John was satisfied. 
Because if it comes to an end, he knows that his work is complete. And I'll tell you, we we must constantly remind ourselves that any good we accomplish in this life is due to the grace of God working in us, not us ourselves. It's just God's grace working in us. I have no capability of doing anything good. Remember the man who came to Jesus and called him good, good master? Jesus said, why do you call me good? There's none good but God. Nothing we do is worth anything that will last unless it's done in the power of the Holy Spirit through faith. We must constantly remind ourselves of these things. Jesus stated similar truths. Listen to them. Turn with me. John chapter 6. Even, Even right down to the salvation of individuals. This is true. Notice what he says. Verse 65. And Jesus said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. So no one, no one can even come to the Savior unless it's from heaven. Now we know that's true because salvation is from above. It's being born from above. Look at chapter 19, verse 11. <clears throat> Jesus is standing before Pilate. Pilate says, you know, I have the power to have you put to death. And in verse 11, Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. See that? Even even unbelievers are controlled by. From above. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. The Corinthians had a real problem in this area. They were, the, they were thinking that the things that they had, the things they had done, were by their own power. That they were sort of self-made people. Americans generally have a problem in this area as well. Because we are an independent people. We make our own way. We live in a society that makes its own way. At least right now we do. Listen to what he says. Chapter 4, verse 7. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? That's the question. Well, you go home today, start looking around, and see if there's anything there that you didn't receive. You've received it all. What do you have that you didn't receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as though you didn't receive it? 
Turn over to chapter 15, 1 Corinthians, verse 10. This is a good one for us all to remember. The Apostle Paul says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, that is the other apostles, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul says the only reason that I can boast in anything is because of God's grace. If you want to boast in something, boast in the grace of God. You can do that. And your boast will be legitimate. Because then God gets the glory and you don't. Last one, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7. Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of His power. The point in all of this is that we have no entitlement of our own. There will be no boasting before the throne of God that we did anything. It will all be, look what you did through me. Look what your grace accomplished in me. It will all be reflected back to him. John was simply a vehicle used by God to usher out the old covenant with its <clears throat> and highlight the one who would inaugurate the new covenant. We must never let our view of ourselves or anybody else, for that matter, get in front of Christ. He is the forerunner. He is the one out front. MacArthur writes, the measure of success of any ministry is not how many people follow the minister, but how many people follow Christ through the minister. I don't know. Uh, are you are you as convicted as I am? Because I've been in the place of these disciples before. Do you ever have a twinge of Envy when you hear about someone else's success or someone else's blessing in life or someone else's ministry. For me, it would be someone else's ministry. For you, it might be someone else's business doing better than yours. Someone else's family prospering more than yours. Someone else's children being recognized better than yours. Do you ever get these twinges of envy? I long for the day when we will be totally rid of this horrid, fallen flesh that we live in. And there will be no more competition. We must understand and acknowledge that all we do, all the success we have, is by the grace of God working in us. Because left to ourselves... We would personalize and squander every last bit of success or popularity on ourselves. We would take the credit. And we would relish and rally in the pride. The success of Jesus' ministry was not a threat to John. On the contrary, he delighted in it because it was God's will that people follow the true Messiah. <clears throat> so he delighted 
that people were going to Jesus. That was why he came. His disciple, this disciples, these disciples didn't understand that. And so John is trying to make it very clear to them. Likewise, to the believer, there is nothing that pleases him more, him or her more than to know that God's will is being done and that people are looking to Christ and not to any other individual. I don't want anybody looking to me. I want them looking to me to see Christ and that's it. Follow Him. It's easy to look to spiritual heroes and esteem them too highly. It's very easy. We're all prone to that because we have this idolistic tendency within us. We loved idols before we became believers and there's still a sense in which idols can come in and take the place of the true one that we worship. Paul warned against this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when he said some of you are following Apollos and some of you are following Cephas and some of you are following Paul and some of you say you're following Christ. He says what I mean is that each one of you says I follow Paul or I follow Apollos or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Can can you divide Jesus up into segments uh, for Paul and, and Peter and Apollos? Was Paul crucified for you? Ah, that's the question, isn't it? That's the one that brings it all home. Who was crucified for you? It was Jesus and Him alone. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? No. Paul reminds them not to put too much stock in men. He says in verses 4 through 6, when one says, I follow Paul, or another says, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? Yeah. Yeah, they they were. That's, That's what we are... So easily do we we act in human ways we're we're human we can we if we let ourselves we can think that way too what then is apollos who is paul servants through whom you believed as the lord assigned to each i planted apollos watered god gave the growth the preacher is only there for the message and the message leads to christ Then the preacher can be forgotten. The message will take you where you're supposed to go if it's the right message. Every genuine ministry, every genuine ministry is Christ-centered. If he is not at the center, then that ministry is bogus. For other foundation can... No other foundation can be laid than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So to this point, John gives them 
an insistent reminder. And here's the reminder. You yourselves bore me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. In other words, I'm only the messenger. They're asking him, what about him? He is baptizing more people than you. What are you going to do about this? And he says, I'm only the messenger to announce the coming of the king. If you want to, if you want to follow the true king, it's him. It's Jesus, the one who's over there. He's the Messiah. So to illustrate this, John plants firmly in, the, in his disciples' minds. He wants them to understand this, so he gives them an illustration from the marriage customs of Judea in that particular time. Now, we talked about the marriage customs of the Galilean wedding in chapter 2. You remember that? The customs of the Judean wedding were different than the Galilean wedding. Not the same kind of wedding ceremony. John describes the wedding in relation to the bridegroom and his friend. So who is the friend of the bridegroom? Well, it would be very much like weddings today where the groom is going to be married and he chooses a friend to be his best man. And that person stands up for him at the wedding. The friend of the bridegroom is the one who oversaw all the details of the wedding and served as the master of ceremonies. He was responsible for bringing the bride to the bridegroom for the marriage ceremony. When he had fulfilled all of these things, then his task was over. And now the groom is the one that receives the bride. So he would stand back. The friend of the bridegroom would then stand back after he delivered the bride to the bridegroom and uh, they are married. He would stand back and he would, his job was done and he would rejoice that his friend, the groom, had received his bride. And there was great joy. This was John's greatest delight. In fact, John uses the word joy, meaning to have great happiness or pleasure in seeing Jesus prosper, in seeing his ministry grow, in seeing people come to him. He rejoiced in that. As the rising prominence of Jesus' ministry upset the disciples of John, There were floods of joy in John himself at the prominence of Jesus' ministry because this is what he lived for. He lived to see people come to Christ. According to ancient law, it was forbidden under any circumstances for the friend of the bridegroom to marry the bride. Even if the groom 
rejected the bride at the last minute, the friend of the bridegroom could not marry that bride. An example of this is found in Judges chapter 14, verse 20 to 15, 3, when Samson lost his bride, you recall that, and he was, he was so upset because it was his friend that had received the bride he was supposed to have had. Therefore, John's only goal, John's only goal here is the advancement of Jesus' work. In John's mind, Israel was the Messiah's bride. And rightly so, because that's what the Scriptures teach. Uh, Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 62. Isaiah 62. The Old Testament alludes to Israel being the bride of Jehovah over and over again. Verses 4 and 5, Isaiah 62, 4 and 5. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall be no more termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. God saw Israel as his bride. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 2. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, I will remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. How you followed me in the wilderness in a land not sown. And then you have the illustration of Hosea who took a harlot as his wife which was a picture of unfaithful Israel, the bride of God. And over and over again we see this. John, of course, would have had no idea at this point that God would save people from every nation under heaven as the bride of Christ. In his mind, it was just the Jews. The Messiah came for the Jews. He didn't have any idea that God would constitute a bride, which is his church. And now all that was left was for Christ to increase and John to decrease. Which is the ultimate of humility. Someone who had prospered and been so popular as John the Baptist was to say, he needs to increase, I have to decrease. And that should be the goal of our lives as well. That wherever we go, whatever we do, whatever we say, whatever ministry we take on, whatever work we do, whatever 
place we prosper in society, we must say, in that, I need to decrease. Christ needs to increase. And if we can do our work, raise our families, serve our God in our church with Christ increasing and us decreasing, we will have had a successful life indeed. Because Jesus is worth decreasing for. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day and for the blessings of it. We pray that you would... uh, (coughs) that you would... Bless our time together this morning around the Word and in worship. We uh, thank you for the opportunity that you give us each week. And we pray, Lord, that you would allow the, take the Word of God and, and use it to change us from within, to burn it into our hearts so that we can serve you in the Spirit, believing having faith so that your name is exalted and Christ is made supreme. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'll make a couple of announcements and then...